Okay, yes, we're back again from last week. Our good old CK listeners, CK, for Comics Karma, yes, good Comics Karma. Um, so it was great to, uh, to have you listen to a lot of our shows the past uh, few weeks. And actually, I've had people come up to me and say, John, I heard your shows way back in February and March. That's with Grace Fraga and Perry Kurtz and and uh, Dana McDermott and a few other ones. I said, wow, thank you. And uh, they love the show. So that means a lot to me that they love my show like that. Uh, having uh, some good emails and good comments on it. So, which inspires me to keep on going more, 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 more. Yes, sorry, that was my Ray Romano. Yes, uh, next time I'll have Ray Romano here next year. And he'll be talking like this. Hey, John, yeah, yeah, come on. Let's, uh, let's uh, interview me, okay? But everyone loves Raymond, okay? Yeah. Thanks, Ray. So, I like to have Ray Romano sometime. Uh, and Jerry Seinfeld. Hey, John, I heard about Comics Karma. Let's do it. Thank you, Jerry. I actually met him a few a long time ago, before the Seinfeld show. And he was actually pretty cool, pretty nice. And I saw him at the improv uh, a few years after that. And he's pretty cool. How you doing, Jerry? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Great, great. So, <laughs> And then a couple, uh, and I think I said this on my last couple podcasts ago, that I was hanging out in Beverly Hills. And... Um, uh, we're going to a nice restaurant. Of course, there was smoking hot babes everywhere in Beverly Hills. Uh, it was about two months ago. And I opened the door and um, and uh, hang out there, and some people walk out. And I find out that uh, that um, Owen Wilson's brother was there. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> so Luke Wilson. And I started making fun of him and say. I said, Luke, is that you? He goes, yeah. I said, where's your brother Owen? Wow, yeah. Yeah, I want to see him. Is he inside? Is he eating a steak? So laughing. He walked away. And then right after that, we hung out, and I ended up hanging out and talking to um, uh, to a couple other guys. Uh, they had, like, celebrities that hang out there and stuff. So um, it was pretty cool, but um, it was fun. It was fun uh, to do the show and meeting people and, Talking to some pretty pretty cool people, and I just uh, it's just amazing. Uh, oh, I'm in all the podcast directories. I'm finding out too. Uh, that's going very very well. So, again, welcome, and uh, I just wish oh everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a great one. I'm not sure about you or the listeners, uh, but I'm still full from eating over 12 hours ago. Oh my God, we had turkey, gravy, stuffing. So if I burp while talking and the show, I'm sorry. Oh, see, it happened again. I'm, I didn't mean it. Sorry. It's just that stuffing and turkey and everything just gets to me. It's just it's, it's crazy, you know. But um, I did have a great time last night. It's my first time in L.A. in 17 years. And... Uh, in the during uh, Thanksgiving, yeah, amazing. Uh, I normally see my family every year at this time. I also see them in Miami. That's right, I'm from Miami, Florida, also uh, in May. But um, 
I actually went to, uh, to Rochester, New York, and Buffalo about a month ago to see my niece get married. So that was pretty cool. And I'm a very, very family-oriented guy. And it was great to, to be there. So then I just found out, my God, it's Thanksgiving. But it's actually worked out pretty good because I hung out with some friends. And we went to the annual Laugh Factory uh, where they feed the homeless and others with no family, comedians, actors, writers, producers. Yes, most of them are homeless and don't have any money. So <laughs> um, <clears throat> unless you're with my guest here, then you can make a living at it. Um, but it was pretty cool. We had about an hour's wait, but it was worth it. Uh, good food, great comedians, like my friend, Frazier Smith. Um, yes, Frazier was the MC there. He's the permanent host there. And uh, he was obviously on my show a few months ago. I've been getting a lot of good remarks on Frasier. So, and it was just, uh, it was pretty cool. I felt blessed that Jamie Masada, the owner, I've actually met Jamie a few times over the years. He does this every year. And many people do not have family, and they're broke. They live paycheck to paycheck, which is pretty sad. Thank God I'm not in that situation. But I have been in my life in the previous years sometimes. And uh, the great thing about this is it's good karma. So Jamie's been around for over 25 years. And it was really interesting to see uh, all walks of life there. I mean, everyone, from young to old, they even had a special line for senior citizens. You had to be 62. I didn't feel like waiting in line, so I almost went up to the guy running the door, and I almost went up to him and started talking like this. Hi, how you doing? I'm 65, going on 70. Can I get in quickly? How about that? But I, I couldn't do it. So, <laughs> but um, there were people like that, and um, it was interesting. There was people in wheelchairs. There was people, um, black, white, Hispanic, everyone. Jeans, dressed up, nice shoes, worn-up sneakers, holes, everything. Everyone was there. And I just thought it was pretty cool. I actually went up to a guy. Uh, obviously, me being a comedian, I have to joke around. So I went up to this guy. He was Japanese. And I said, how you doing, sir? He goes, oh, I'm fine. How are you? I said, good. So are you here to have some turkey? Oh, yeah. I want to have some turkey. I said, really? Well, you know... What kind of turkey do you like? Do you like, like white meat or dark meat? Oh, I, any meat is okay as long as they have soy sauce. <laughs> say, he really did say that. So he, I guess he busted my chops or something. <laughs> and he goes, I said, do you need chopsticks? Oh, I'll take chopsticks too. Oh, I guess he must have been a comedian or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I had another guy, like a, like I guess like nine or ten people behind him. And... He was an Indian guy, and I had one of my best friends is, is, is Indian. So I had to talk up to him. <laughs> I got to say, hey, buddy, so uh, excited about having Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, fantastic to be here. Really? So, so he really talked like that heavy accent. <laughs> like he's, and it's like, I started laughing. I, I go, really? So, well, so do you like to have stuffing? I, mean, I want to have stuffing, but I need to have it with gurry. Chicken curry all the time. 
cannot believe this guy was saying this to me. This is actually a true story. This actually did happen last night. So <laughs> I had to share that with you. All walks of life from people all over. But getting back to the good karma thing is that um, it is pretty cool that I have been here in L.A. and I did have a nice family to see year after year after year. And you spend every Thanksgiving with them, like I said, it's the first time in almost 20 years. And um, and I did it, and, and it feels good to have some nice food and be with people. And like I said, many, many people did not have that chance. So for you listeners who are obviously listening right now and downloaded on iTunes and have my thousands of people on my website, uh, visit every day, every week. I just hope you had a great Thanksgiving and fantastic that you're here listening. And I do have uh, some great guests the past uh, few months. And now I'm excited to have a great guest here today. Uh, his name is Billy Reback. And he is a writer, producer, and comedian like me. Now, the interesting thing about having Billy here is I produce sitcoms mostly for the internet. I did a show called Phonies, P-H-O-N-E-S, like a phone, about telemarketers. Weird people, weird telemarketers from all walks of life. I did one called Three's a Crowd, a comedian guy in his 50s who falls in love with a woman half his age. She just knows nothing about uh, the things that this character was talking about. By the way, the character was me, by the way. Um, she didn't know anything about uh, TV shows and old TV shows and movies. All she knew about is YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And it's all she knows about, which is kind of sad because that's what these kids watch. They don't know the old great shows that we're going to talk about in a few minutes here with Bill. Um, you just can't get better shows than All in the Family, The Dick Van Dyke Show. Um, you know, everyone loves Raymond, even that was good back in the 90s, like I said. Uh, just back in the 60s and 70s, I can go on and on and on. Uh, it's fantastic. I, I, 50 years later, I still watch the Andrew Griffith Show. I still watch The Odd Couple. I mean, you name it, I watch it. I sit there and record it on MeTV, which is my favorite station. And when you have shows like that, Obviously, it's still funny, and I've seen each show so many times, 30, 40 times each. And I'll be honest with you, every time I watch those shows, I laugh all the time. 50 years later, 40 years later, 30 years later. It's just amazing. And sometimes I wish that it would go back to that in Hollywood like that. And... um there are some good shows that are on now, of course, and um, one of the best shows is what we're going to be talking about right now, and um, is, like I said, it's very hard to create good shows and to get it on the air and do, to get it more on one season, it's like winning the lottery. Um, it's just amazing. It's just amazing how hard it is. So that's why we have Bill here to talk about help creating funny sitcoms like Home Improvement, Hey Arnold, Buddies, and writing for them too, like Monsters, 
Murphy Brown? Murphy Brown. See, I loved Murphy Brown. Watched it for years and years. It's great. So we would like to welcome Mr. Billy Reback. Hey, <laughs> thank thank you for uh, for having me. And I, I wasn't sure if you were going to do the whole show by yourself. So <laughs> I'm glad. I, I built up a lot of phlegm while you were talking, so I'm going to have to clear my throat at some point in time. <laughs> So that could take about six or seven minutes. We'll, we'll do the we'll do the hour easily. I promise you. By the way, I did not create. Um, hey, hey, Arnold! I was a guest voice actor on Hey Arnold. Played a, a baseball announcer. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, the IMDb doesn't break stuff down. Yeah. Uh, my my girlfriend does that. She she breaks me down. Actually, <laughs> so, uh, but that's a whole other story. And I don't have a girlfriend. Just did that for the joke. But the point is, uh, I didn't create that show. But we can get into everything that's that's on IMDb. There's all kinds of stories behind. All those things. Oh, I, I, you, seriously, you got a lot of credits, man. It's just, it's incredible. The, uh, some of the things uh, in there. But uh, let's start off with uh, a lot of people ask me, John. I, would, I always like to hear how some comedians get started in their life. What makes them laugh? What makes it? Do they come from funny families? Do they, do they just really inspired by people? Uh, I've talked about how I was inspired by Jim Carrey and. Um, other imp- and uh, other impressionists, uh, Frank Gorshin and things like that. So back when I was a kid. So how did you get into comedy? I got into comedy because I had an uncle who, if he were alive today, would be dead. That's how old he would be. He would be probably 118 maybe. But when I was growing up, he was in his 70s already. And he was hilarious he actually understudied Al Jolson on Broadway in the mid-20s. Wow. And he was an impresario. He booked everybody in the history of show business. And I'm from Montreal, from Canada. Oh, yeah. okay. And we do have Thanksgiving there. We celebrate on the second Monday in October, and we think give thanks that we're not from the United States. It's a whole, right. it's a whole <laughs> other thing. We have a bologna sandwich, we go outside. Because we didn't kill any <laughs> Indians. So we have nothing to feel guilty about, so we don't have to overcompensate. Um, but anyway, in Montreal, <laughs> my uncle was an impresario, and he really did book it. He turned down... Two entities. He turned down the Beatles and Celine Dion. Very, very good move on his part. Uh, didn't get the Beatles and thought Celine Dion was too ugly to be in show business. Not that he was wrong about that. Was, very like, serious. I mean, very serious. Turned down would he, for what? Booking I mean, them. Booking them. Oh, and they also oh, book, could have okay. could have probably managed her, but would not book the Beatles in Montreal. Early, early on. It's, honest to God, it's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, man. it's a, not wow. not a good call. Not a good call. Wow. Yet, yet at the time, because I didn't know that was going to be one of the bonehead moves in the history of show business, he had a profound influence on me. He was very, very funny, very silly. He had way too much dye in his hair. But he booked everybody else besides the Beatles and Celine Dion. And I met them all <laughs> when I was a kid. I met Danny Kaye. I met Shirley MacLaine. I met oh, Jack wow. Benny. And when I was like six, Danny Kaye, by the way, an ass. Just for the just for the record, really, he really was. He was, and by the, that's his reputation. He was a, he was a terrible, <laughs> terrible human being, and he's dead, so we don't care. He was a not a nice yeah, man. He's yeah. just a brutal guy. Wow, but no a kidding, see, massive talent, an unbelievable. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. No end to his talent. Um, but I remember at five, I'm looking up at this guy, and I'm going, "Why is he mean to me? My father does that. I, I already have." So that you're in my saying life. You're, you're like five, six years Swear old, to you. and 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 you remember absolutely and you, like I, yesterday. See, isn't that great? I remember stuff when I was five, six, oh, yeah. seven of years course. old, too. Of Seriously, course. I do, yeah. Some of them involve one of my uncles, but I don't want to talk about that. I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> but I did meet a lot of very famous people when I was young. I met George Carlin when I was about 14. Oh, uh, wow. I have a Bill Cosby story that maybe we can get to. Yes, we'll get to that. But I will, t- I will tell you, by the way, about, about Cosby, that my uncle used to tell me that when he would pick Cosby up at the airport in the limo, first thing Cosby would say is, Roy... 
where are the blonde hookers? First thing. Are you serious? I'm, oh, my Could God. not be more. Now, that's a leap to what oh, he's man. been accused of, and I certainly am on the uh, side of, I believe, everything that we've heard, except for maybe two of them. Yeah. But, yeah. but that yeah. was always his attitude. And white, loved white women. Whoa, loved white women. Yeah, a lot of them, yeah, you're right. A lot of the white women are the ones that are accusing him. Yeah, yeah. But I used to hear this truly when I was a kid. So, And then I ended up meeting him, and he was a horrendous human being. So, uh, and, and like I said, we can get to that. So when, when everything broke, I was not exactly astounded by, you know, by what we heard. Yeah. It's very sad because he was absolutely the first comedian I listened to for probably the first record album they used to have them they were big and black and they would oh. go around on a gramophone oh yeah and I, I know you know yeah but i had every one of cosby's albums i can picture uh the first one was white with pink lettering on it right bill cosby's a very funny fellow right and it was genius brilliant loved it and then you know, that's the one sad thing about being in show one of the one of the negatives possible negatives you do meet people that you love right but then you meet people you've idolized your entire life and you go oh god these are this, uh, oh, why? Why did I have yeah. to go through this? Yeah. Because, and then when people ask you, you feel horrible about telling them because they don't want to have the legend smashed, you know? Right. But then again, you have to be true to yourself and you go, well, no, you should know. They put out this talk about karma, really bad karma. Right. And I don't mind letting you know because apparently they didn't, they didn't mind being that way. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. But anyway, Cosby was certainly one of them. And I told that story a lot. He was a mean guy. Really huh. mean guy. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 sad. And, and by the way, everybody's had their own experiences. I know somebody who met him and hung out with him and said he was fantastic. Right. You know, I'm sure Hitler had a couple of friends who said, you know, on weekends he plays golf, he's fine. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you don't you know you know what I mean? We can only judge people by how they yeah. by how they treat us. Zeke Kyle. Yeah, Zeke But I have a hole right, in one. Right, right hole down in... right right down two. It was seventeen, Adolf. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. I'm I'm Hole in one, Zeke. Exactly. So yeah. anyway. <laughs> but the Cosby thing was uh it was a mind blower. I've been warned that it could it could transpire the way it did, but you know whatever, whatever. We'll, we can <laughs> we can we, we can get into that. Anyway, the point is going back is I'll go on tangents today. Uh, Roy Cooper was my uncle, and okay. he was the reason for sure. Because going for, growing up in Montreal, there was nobody who ended up doing you know what I've done. I mean, since then, some people have come out of Montreal for sure. But at that time, when I left, when I was twenty one, there had been nobody who had done that. Mm. And it was just in my blood. I mean, Roy made yeah. me laugh. He did all kinds of stupid stuff. This is obviously a podcast. You can't see it, but he put his arms through my armpits and move his hands around like it was me making oh, yeah, weird, yeah, that yeah. thing. But when yes, you're four yes. and five, it's hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. And I yeah, would laugh yeah. like an idiot. Yeah. And I would make him do it when I was 15 and 16 because I wasn't that mature, to be honest with you. So I loved that kind of nonsense. Was 15 would, going on eight. Yeah. yeah. He would do that thing where you walk, you go behind the couch and you pretend you're walking down the stairs. Oh, yeah, A genius, yeah. but he did it better than anybody I've ever seen. Yeah. So it was that kind of kookiness, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so when he talked about all the old comics, and I, I mean, it was a, a tremendous, tremendous childhood I had. Uh, in other words, my father had nothing. Well, it's not entirely true. The fact is my father's a lawyer, still alive. He's going to be 90 in two weeks, which is phenomenal. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and he's very verbal, very bright, very eloquent, very articulate, very well read, just plain smart. And he would challenge me all the time. So Dinner Table was a Neil Simon play. I mean, it was, how can I put you down and then have you come back at me? It was truly a challenge. When he would come home from work, and being a lawyer is not an easy gig, the clarion call would sound in my house. My brother and my sister, you know, his daddy in a good mood. Right. And if the answer was no, which was inevitably no. Uh, it was up to me being the eldest. To what, kind, put what, kind, what kind of lawyer was he? He was a civil lawyer, which is not how he acted at home. He okay. was a, he handled divorce. That's what he did. Um, and my parents are still, are still married. 
which is amazing. It's astounding, actually. Oh, yeah. See, my, my parents, well, unfortunately, dad passed away uh, uh, about seven, eight years ago. And, um, yeah, mom is... Uh, Ninety-four. There you go. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, right. I swear to God, yeah, it's Thursday. No, it's, it's, and it's, I just it's, feel blessed that, that, yeah, it's good. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the but but at the time, I was sort of there to soothe the savage beast because he'd come home in a foul mood most of the time. Yeah, I was just, yeah. Okay. And I I would do it by being funny. So really, the comedy was a survival mode. That's exactly. So what your it dad was. wasn't really. You see, obviously, your dad wasn't funny. Not particularly funny. My dad wasn't either. Yeah, not particularly funny. But when My I would, was, I would yeah. do a gay voice, made him laugh. <laughs> uncontrollably, uncontrollably. I think part of him was going, I, I hope he doesn't really talk like this. But I would do it, and then when he'd had enough, he would go, enough with the jokes! <laughs> Just in a minute, like, oh, but four seconds ago, it was, it was funny. I don't, how can you have, and I remember thinking, how can you have enough do the gay of the voice. jokes? Do, do the gay voice. Stop you, you, it, John. I will tell you that when I saw you the first time, I went, this is a man that I could get to know really, really well. And um, if he'll let me into his life, he has a lot of vowels in his second name, but that's okay. That doesn't stop me. Uh, I will uh, I will just accost him when he's least expecting it, and we'll just go off in the sunset together. Like that. So, But when you're 12... Billy, that's third, hysterical. We, My God. It's, it's fantastic, and, and not offensive at all anymore. So, so well, when you're 12 and 13, 120 years ago... Nobody was offended. My father loved it. And exactly, whatever, yeah, exactly. Whatever yeah. it took, you know. But then literally he would yell enough with the jokes. And I remember thinking, enough with the jokes? How could you have enough jokes? And it's not a fluke that I ended up doing what I've done with my life because you end up in a, in a room on a comedy show. No one goes enough with the jokes. Actually, they do. That's a whole other story. Right, right, but, right, right, But right. essentially, you're encouraged to be funny and then you have roast beef. It's not a bad gig, you know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I would say that my uncle and my father had the two biggest biggest profound influences on me. And I also, uh, the son of Roy Cooper, whose name was Robert Cooper, is a producer in L.A., he did magic. Okay. I would go to his house. He put me in this blue chair that swiveled, turned me around. I was 28 now. I was like nine. And he would turn me around about 80 times until I was close to vomiting. And then I was ready to be fooled very easily. Mm. And he would fool me. And I was absolutely captivated by magic. And I still mm. do it. It's a hobby. been a hobby for my whole life. But- Bobby would perform around town and put himself through, through McGill University by doing magic, and I did the same thing. So it was another influence. So that got me on stage. So it was Roy Cooper got me interested in show business in general. His son got me interested in magic, which got me on stage performing for kids, right. having more fun making the parents laugh because the parents had the checkbook. I am a Jew. I'm not an idiot. Parents had the checkbook. They paid me. I made them laugh. I didn't even care if I fooled the kids anymore. Right. So that's what first got me on stage. And after a while, you go, well, the wand falls apart on its own. The kids laugh. I had nothing to do with that funny wand. So Now, now is that interesting? Because Judy Carter, which did our show last week, right? Uh, same thing, started off in magic. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. Well, a lot of people. I mean, Dick Cavett did magic. Carson did magic. Mil yeah. Not Milton Berle. Yeah, uh, Orson great. Welles did magic. I mean, there's a whole history of that's right. very famous people who got into magic. Because the ingenuity of magic is, am is amazing. And it, it's, uh, for me... Uh, it really opened my mind. I have probably 1,500 books on magic. I love it. I love it. It's a great yeah, escape. I love, from... I love it, too, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's brilliant, and I've been a member of the Magic Castle for years. But the, the point is, it's what got me on stage. And first, you have the props to rely on to get the laughs. Right. Then one day you go, okay, I'm throwing the props away. I think I'm funny enough on my own, but I think I can get the same laughs without the funny wand that breaks on its own. You know what I mean? Now, what about your, your mom? Was your mom fun? Tremendously encouraging. Not funny, but... Not funny at all? Or, or... Not funny at all, but loves wordplay, loves puns. I'll tell you the first joke I ever made, John, when I was five years old, nothing to mm -hmm. do with being gay. We went to uh, A&W. 
the drive into Montreal. Oh. And I was sitting in the back seat, I remember, like two seconds ago. And I said to my parents, I know what A&W stands for. They said, what? I said, orange and root beer, because those were the two drinks that they had. It was That's or- right. Orange yeah. and root beer. That's right. So I went, orange and root beer, and my mother went insane laughing. And I went, I knew I made a joke. I don't know why my brain came up with that at five. It's an odd thing to think of. <laughs> but she laughed, and she encouraged me. And then... We started watching Marx Brothers movies together, which, of course, had a ton of wordplay. I went to a pretty smart camp where we had movies every Sunday night. They had a lot of comedies, a lot of Marx Brothers, a lot yeah. of Three Stooges, which is not particularly smart, oh. but comedy is comedy. Still and Three Stooges, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, that was my mother who encouraged me to be funny, to be verbal, to read. I read a ton when I was a kid. Now she was a housewife, I guess? Yeah, okay, but now, by the way, way, John, at 87 years old, a travel agent goes to work every day. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. What, what about your brothers and sisters? Do you have brothers and sisters? Or? Sister passed away eight years ago. Horrible thing. We can oh, get into that. Okay. We'll do four hours today, John. Um, <laughs> the thing about my sister, she was sick for the last 25 years of her life. And I will tell you that it absolutely put this absolutely retarded business that we're in in total perspective. It sounds so cliched. But she struggled every day of her life for 25 years. She had a tumor in her back. They found it when she was 25. She went from cane to walker to wheelchair to goodbye in 25 years. But the cane to walker to wheelchair was fast. So mm. she was essentially a paraplegic for mm. for 25 years. Anyway, not a par- uh, yeah, parapl- uh, not a paraplegic. No, she was um, she was paralyzed from the waist down. She wasn't a paraplegic. Right, 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 right. Um, right. But the point is that I watched her struggle, and so you know, if somebody didn't laugh at a joke, or I couldn't get a gig, or somebody was mean to me, or put me down, what it was okay. That doesn't feel good, but my sister is you know she has to have an attendant to take her to the bathroom in the morning. Yeah. So you know these things don't even up. I mean, this is not fair because they're but for the grace, as they who say. Took, who took care of her? Well, my mother was remote. She ended up moving to Toronto from Montreal okay. because there was much better uh, health system there. Okay. Right. Better hospitals, better equipped. Also, the sidewalks had that indentation where you could actually get up on the sidewalk in your wheelchair. They had ramps around Toronto much more than Montreal. My sister became a muckraker. She was actually honored at City Hall after she passed. So, um, wow, okay. no, she was on her own, but she did have an attendant to help her in the morning yeah. and at night. Yeah. And my yeah. parents would go down every couple of weekends. A very tough life for my whole family. Very tough. So I was sort of the shining star, I guess. Um, you know, my, my business is silly and frivolous. We know it's a very serious business, but maybe people laugh either with your brain or your pen. It's kind of a goofy, silly thing to, to do with well, your you life. Well, you do. Yeah, you do it. I mean, we make people laugh. We want to make people laugh because we love, we love it. That's it. Well, they get it, paid for it, it feels, or not. It we just feels like, great. I've said this in my podcast many times. I've been making people laugh since I was nine years old. Yeah. I was doing impersonations of my teacher. Yeah. Well, of course. Kids. That's, that's uh, what we all It's start. crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how, did you get into stand How did you, When did you start getting into stand-up after you did the magic? Well, the, I started doing shows around Montreal, hosting a lot of shows. We did okay. a thing. I went to McGill University, I think I mentioned before, and we started a thing called Cabaret, where we ran to the various uh, frat houses, mm-hmm. and we put on a show. I emceed the show. We had a guy play piano. We had a ventriloquist. We had wow. another magic act. We had a few singers. We did a couple of sketches, and it really went pretty well. And so um, I wrote a bit uh, about AM. I think it was influenced by, by Carlin, I think. As okay. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure. So I did a thing where I was at a very, very cheap and poor radio station and I had to host both the AM side and the FM side. So I had two stools on stage and I'd do the, hey, how you doing? Okay, good to see you. You know, that voice. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, i go yeah. right back to, okay, hi. And then I would get confused and start doing the FM voice and the AM and the M and the FM. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote this whole bit and got, you know, big laughs and I went, oh, that was fun. 
That was okay. Actually, actually I had friends that talked to me like that. <laughs> you okay? You see, you know that. Seriously, I went to Ithaca College in this one, right. and here I'm like 18 year old kid. Right. I'm going to Ithaca College, and I'm talking to this guy, and I said, "How you doing?" He goes, "I'm fine. How are you?" Exactly. I swear. You're like, "Stop doing it." I know. Really? It's very Where are you from? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> I know we said that because so. there's so many syllables. He was really from Boston. Not as interesting. Yeah. Boston. Boston. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. Boston. Boston, yeah, Boston is good, but Philadelphia. You can really yeah, hit the Delphi. Philadelphia. Yeah. So it was beyond fun. That was funny. Man, it was, yeah. yeah, it was great. It was great. So that's how we started. And then one day I went, I took a job. I took a straight job as opposed to a gay job. I took a job selling insurance to doctors, which was as dull as it sounds. Yeah. As soon as I graduated from, from uh, university and I told the guy who owned the company, I'm going to last her a summer. That's it. I want to be a comedian. He went, yeah, yeah, sure. And then one day I went up to him and I said, I was actually serious. After about six months, I'm going to New York. And he went, Oh, you were, I said, yeah, I was serious. Oh, Absolutely. wow. Okay. So you did the, uh... I had $700 in my pocket. My parents thought I was out of my mind, didn't attempt to stop me, and I said, I'm going. How old were you? I was 21. So, and you, so you went from 21, started doing stand-up around Montreal, for about two, three years, making your, you thought you were funny, knew you were funny, actually knew you were funny, made your mom laugh, your dad laugh, ba 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 All of a sudden, you just said, you know what? Absolutely. I'm going to New York City. A thousand percent. That's it. And what year was this? This was, it was 1976. Wow. Yep, That's February 76. The reason I'm asking, because 76... To the eight, to the all the way through the eighties and early nineties, was the prime time for stand up. Yeah, it was amazing. So you started when Seinfeld did. Pretty when much, pretty much everybody. Just a little bit, a little bit after Jerry. When I got to New York, but when I got to New York, I had a cousin who lived in New Rochelle, and he was in the business. He was an agent at ICM, which is a huge talent agent for people who are listening who don't know. Of course. And yeah. so I would I stay with him and his wife and his kids in New Rochelle. We would drive in every morning at nine o'clock. Oh wow! And I would walk around New York City for nine hours. Wow. And really learn the town. And do I mean I had nothing. I had zero dollars. And just to get comfortable in New York, observe, look at people. Right. And it was an amazing education. And then I go back to the office at six o'clock, we drive back to Notre Shell. And then he had an assistant who was um, a guy who was straight. I say this really? because of what I'm about to tell you. A well, he had, guy? well okay. because he had so many women <laughs> he had so many women he slept with that just it was kidding. finally a guy that he couldn't. So <laughs> so and this guy was the only attractive assistant he had, which was the irony. Um, so I told him, I said, Steve, if you're ever going to be gay, this is the one you should, you should experiment with. So anyway, <laughs> but his assistant and I really hit it off. And he said, you know, if you live in New Rochelle and you're here to be a comic, you've wasted nine months of your life. You're not going to, you, you can't go on stage. You can't get home. It's too late. Yeah. He goes, I have a crappy apartment in the city. Um, stay with me. I said, I can't afford it. He said, no, no, come on. We're friends. It cost me zero. It's a garbage place. We'll sleep in the same bed. I'm not kidding you. I said, Peter, this is insanity. He went, I know, but let's, it'll be fun. So we did. We slept two straight guys up in the same bed for one year, but I was in New York City, 47 and uh, 40, no, 46 between second and third. Okay, yep. And what happened was, I had no money. I mean, I had absolutely nothing. So I went, all right, I got it. Which is tough because New York City is, is expensive. Insane. It's insane. And by the way, it's I've all been relative. There like, you know, 50 times over yeah. the years. In 1976, it wasn't what it is now, but even relatively speaking, still, it was absurd, of still, course. Yeah, yeah. But our, my rent was zero. And so, but I, I mean, I had to exist. So uh, my cousin, who would, been Peter's employer. Peter subsequently quit because my cousin's insane. My cousin had some friends who were in, let's say, the mob. Let's say the mob. So you won't know what I'm talking about. And <laughs> he had one guy who You're was talking about me, head the of the mob, yeah. exactly, head of the Jewish mob. Michelle, take care is, of the freaking Billy guy, right? Exactly. Well, he didn't talk like that because he was Jewish. Okay. But but like, hi, how are you? It's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his name was Mo the Foreskin Leibowitz because we even had a good nickname. <laughs> really? Was really? No, not at all. <laughs> 
But anyway, okay, it's yeah, it's okay. um, <laughs> well, we, we need we need. You have nuns with the bump scarabelli. You got to have Jewish nicknames for the Jewish mob. <laughs> exactly. So we owned a ton of strip. bomb. Hey. Exactly. <laughs> so he he owned a ton of strip joints, and I said, oh, let me get a, a job there. He said, no, those are taken. But I can get you a job in a gay bar, in a really bad area of New York. And I said. Okay, I'll do that. And remember, this was pre-AIDS. So you can only imagine how right. insane this was. Oh We're my talking God, late 76, yep. and I'm the only straight guy in the place, and I do the voice, but I didn't dare do the voice, obviously. Of course not. And get hit let, me, let yeah. me tell you, well, no, it was really interesting because I learned so much about a subculture at the time. It was really a subculture. I mean, forget what you know now and what the world is aware of now. Right. <laughs> this was, I'm convinced that AIDS began in the bar I worked in. I mean, I got to tell you, it was, we're talking 55-year-old IBM executives and 14-year-old pimpled runaways from Long Island. Oh my and God. whatever they did in the bathroom was their business. Exactly. And I was like literally a shrink to both sides. I mean, I, I, you have no idea how many kids I, I tracked down their families, called them, had their parents come and get them and oh, take wow. them home. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I couldn't watch it. It was horrifying. Right. Yeah. Um, so what I did learn was interesting was when a guy would be behind me looking at me, I started actually understanding there must be something to, if not ESP, to telepathy in some way because I could feel the eyes burning into me. Mm. And I would turn around inevitably, like a thousand for a thousand, and then the guy quickly, you know, quickly turn away. And I became much more respectful of women. I'm not telling you, I'm not going to sit there and lie to you and say I don't stare at women because that would be insane. Right, right, right. But I am, I'm careful about it. I, I keep it to a minimum because it's obnoxious. And, and I felt it. And I really could tell from behind. It was crazy. But, you know, the, the ground rules have been established. Okay, so you started doing that. And then all of a sudden... And one day, um, a guy went to touch me. I picked up my little change purse that you had to wear in the bar. I wore okay. a white tank top, tight jeans, little change purse, like, like not a purse, but a little change that bus drivers used to right. wear. I went to the bar and told the guy, you know, this guy was coming. And he went, you're in a gay bar. What did you expect? So I picked up the change thing, threw it against the mirror behind the bar. It shattered into about 78 trillion pieces. And I ran down 8th Avenue and my career started. I went on stage that night. Oh, okay. Okay, so, that's interesting. Because, okay. Well, I was working from noon till eight. I was exhausted mentally, physically. It was a completely insane right. job. Right. Thrilled I did it. Learned a ton. Uh, passed no judgments. It was a crazy world. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone starts with, with crazy businesses and, and different places. Absolutely. So then you so you left that. Then you started getting into, well, obviously, you, you, I, mean, I mean, you're already doing stand-up at, at Montreal. Yeah, but I hadn't done it. I had been on stage for probably a year. Over a year. R so you decided to go into, you know, did they have open mics? Back they, then? they did. I okay. went to a place called Reno Sweeney, which is in the village where Patty Benatar started. Oh wow! Uh, where Holly Woodlawn, who was um, a I think a hermaphrodite, kind of famous at the time, a lot of crazy acts, offbeat acts. Right. But I knew somebody, knew somebody, and I managed to go on there. I remember my first joke, which was not impressive. I walked on stage with six people in the audience, and I, I actually had a package wrapped up with a ribbon. And I put it down to the piano, and, and I said, you're probably wondering why I have this. I said, because people said it's important to have stage presence. So right, right. there you go. So I got as big a laugh then as I did from you. So, but, but, I got, <laughs> but, I got, but I got on stage, and the first joke that I ever actually really, truly wrote came out of the gay bar. It was a joke that became, I'm not going to say I was identified with it, but it was stolen by everybody. And the joke was, and it was so clearly my joke because it came out of my actual right. experience, which is the way to write comedy, obviously something that you've experienced, something you've witnessed, something you've lived, right. it's going to have a lot more impact. And what I had noticed was everybody came into the bar, not everybody, but a lot of guys came in, had a coding system with their keys. They wore the keys on the right side, it meant they were submissive. Wore them on the left side, it meant they were dominant. And I said, and if they wore them on both sides, right. it means they're a janitor. <laughs> that was a joke. That's funny. <laughs> great joke. Big joke. Okay. And 
like I said, it was stolen by everybody, including club owners. I remember doing a club in Oceanside in California, outside San Diego, and, and the guy said, you got to hear this new commercial I did. The owner of the club had done his own commercial, and he played me the tape, and it was him doing my joke. I said, I wrote that. He went, no way. I went, yeah, massive way, absolutely way. Oh but this God. is like a thousand years later, you know, so the joke had really gone around. But, you know, this as a friend of mine who's unfortunately long gone named Joe Restivo, who's a wonderful comic, used to say, because I got ripped off a ton, he used to say, you know what? Here's the answer. Write another joke. Yeah. That's the only way to combat it because you can't run around. It's like it's like fighting ISIS. It's like whack-a-mole. You, you know, you kill one guy, 400 other idiots come up. <laughs> I go after one guy who stole a joke. There's 12 others, and that would happen. And then I went, it doesn't matter. So how long did you do uh, stand-up at, in New York City before you started getting into the writing? About a year, and, uh, about just over a year. And what okay. happened was uh, a guy named David Fry. You said you love impression. David Fry oh, of course, was of the course, king David. of the— he, Oh, my God. I love David Fry. Yeah, well, David, David Fry changed my life. I won't even say indirectly, pretty directly. What happened okay. was, What happened was, so Fry was a cuckoo bird yeah. and an alcoholic, but yeah. I say arguably, but according to Jeff Altman, who loved me when he found that I did this. I know and, Jeff. Well, Jeff's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Altman would say, and Jeff was a fantastic impressionist himself and still is. Yeah. He would say, not arguably, David was the greatest impressionist who ever lived. You know, maybe, maybe. But David saw me on stage at Catch a Rising Star. And David's own personal star was starting to tumble because right. he hurt himself. I mean, he was a drinker, and right, right, right. He, right. he had, you know, he had problems. It's very, very sad, you know. But he saw me, and he saw a guy named Steve Middleman, and Steve happened to be one of my best friends. Oh yeah, and, Steve Middleman. Yeah, uh, yeah, and we and we're still in. We're I would say arguably there we go again. Arguably my best friend, and I love Steve, and he's a a brilliant comic. Anyway, so he asked us to write for him. He wanted to do a comeback album. And Gabe Kaplan had written his first couple of albums, won Grammys for them. That's right, yeah. And so Steve and I met with David a billion times. We wrote him an album. I actually gave it the title. It was about Jimmy Carter. This will tell you how long ago. And it was called Southern Discomfort, which is a pretty good title back right. then. Right. And, you know, we ended up doing the album. He did, uh, he did two tapings of the album. Um, first one went through the roof. Second one, in between the two tapings, he went to a nearby bar, had... Steve says it was 14. I think it was 13 Kahlua and Creams. Right. So the second taping, not that good. Hubert Humphrey sounded like Anita Bryant, and Truman Capote sounded oh, yeah, like yeah. Bob Dylan. You know, it wasn't that <laughs> good, right, you know? That's right, yeah. And so it was a mess. So we had to go on the first taping because the second one was unusable. And he sold it in colleges, and, it, you know, it did okay. I actually got a copy of it, which is just the biggest kick in the world. Right. I got a copy recently, you know, 100 years ago. Anyway, David was in L.A. trying to sell the album, and he ran it to Gabe Kaplan, who would Written his first, as I said, written his first yeah. couple of albums. Now, obviously, so, everyone knows Gabe Kaplan. Welcome back, Connor. Welcome back, Connor. Right, which yes. is a huge, huge show. We're huge talking, show. Again, I still not, watch it. Yeah. Still laugh. Again, still 40 fun years show. Later. And look at the cast. We're John Travolta. Tremendous, yeah, yeah. Bob, 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 Bob Burrito. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, anyway, so uh, David recommended Steve and me to write for Gabe because Gabe had 45 minutes and was sort of stuck. He also played poker. He still plays poker. Yeah. That was really his passion. And he, he just still did, He makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year playing, when, when, playing poker. When he wins. So when, anyway. When, yeah, when he wins. Exactly. So, <laughs> so he was stuck at his 45 and he needed material. So David recommended Stephen May. We were 22 at that point. So I get a call one day, November of 77. I mean, like right now. 23, 38 years ago, probably today or yesterday. Right, right. And hey, let's Gabe Cow. I can't do the impression. But Gabe Cow. And I, of course... I, I didn't believe it because David had not, because David was a mental case, so he didn't tell us that he was going to come. <laughs> right. So I had friends who were impressionists. I said, hey, Steve, you know, cut it out. And right. I said it much stronger than that, but I can't say it on your show. And I kept mocking the person, saying this is absurd, blah, blah, And Gabe was begging me to believe that he was gay. It was hysterical. And, um, and it was Gabe Gavel. So he said, I want to fly you and Stevie to Vegas to write for my act. 
and I and he said, "Will you do that?" I said, "I'm I'm at the airport, Gabe. I'm 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 on the I'm on the plane now. I'm actually on the plane now." Right. I mean, I lived in this crappy place, and I think it was 66 between. Oh, I think it was Lexington and Third, maybe. I mean, truly cold water flight. We had no hot water. I had no heat. Right. It was November. I'm sitting there going, "What have I done with my life? I'm a smart Jew from Canada. I'm a complete idiot." Yeah. And then I get a call from Gabe Kaplan, and I go, "Okay." So I took my four pair of underwear, my five socks, not five pairs, just five socks. Right. And maybe a week later, I was in Vegas with Middleman, writing for Gabe. Wow. And going to the show every night, stayed at the Aladdin Hotel. He paid a 700 cash a week. Meals extra paid. I mean, meals as in we also got paid, for, uh, you know, our right. meal money. Correct. 700 yeah. cash. Met George Carlin uh, like three in the morning at the Aladdin. Carlin walked by. Again? You met him again. Well, no, Carlin. Yes, I met him. No, I yeah, remember met him I again. I did meet him at Place des Arts. No, the yeah. truth is he was so high when I met him at Place des Arts that he had no recollection of meeting him. Oh, okay. Um, for, matter of fact, I remember that show very well because he actually started doing a routine that he'd done earlier in the show. Oh. And I was sitting with my uncle, and it turned out my uncle had gotten him the pot. And I went, mm. good job, Roy. So, but uh, Carlin, remember, he caught himself and he said something like, I've, I've did this already. And they went, yeah. And then it was, they forgave him and he was fine. So, yes, I, believe me, when I met him with Gabe, you know, 20 years later, not 20, is actually what, seven, eight years later, right. I did not remind him of that fantastically memorable night. So, Gabe introduced Steve and me to, uh, to Carlin. And I remember what he said to me. He looked at us and he went, You're comedy writers. And we said, Yeah. He said, Premises, premises. Just worry about premises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and, right. and it was, and he spark, eyes were, he was very alert, very sober, and um, sparkling blue eyes. I'll never forget. Right. And he could not have been more warm and endearing. It was really kind of fantastic. And Middleman and I stood there going, wow, that was, that was George Carlin. This is crazy. This is crazy. So, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool that you get to meet these great yeah, people. Yeah, it was amazing. Like Gabe Kaplan. It was amazing. I mean, George Carlin. These are, these are icons of, of, thousand percent. of comedy. thousand percent. Now, you also told me, Bill, that you wrote for Bob Newhart. I did. How, how'd that happen? Well, anyway, jumping ahead quickly, I mean, you know, we could do this all day. But basically what happened was Gabe liked us a lot. Didn't try out that much of the material, but did some of it because he was too busy playing poker. But he liked us enough to fly us to L.A. Oh. to write, because at the time, this is so long ago, ABC was, ABC was having its 25th anniversary special. 20, can you imagine? Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Now it's, what, 60, I guess, Something right? like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and Gabe was hosting. So Stevie and I came out, he put us up in this absolute hovel in West Hollywood on Havenhurst, where I ended up living for 13 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically I tell people that we had no square feet. There were no square feet in the entire place. Right. So, but he put us up, Middleman left, he couldn't take LA. Stevie left after we did the gig, right. I ended up staying forever. But Gabe paid for maybe three months. Anyway, there we were in Los Angeles, or here we were in Los Angeles, I'm in the Valley, it doesn't count. Right. Um, and there we are in Los Angeles, West Hollywood, and I'm sitting there going, well, that's pretty Cool. Gabe Kaplan paid to fly me here yeah. to write for a show. So Steve and I worked on his monologue. We wrote it, did a kind of a funny thing about, I remember Bonanza. I mean, really an old show, but right, the right. fact that the all the three sons were actually older than the father, because at right, the time, right. you know, they all looked sort of older than Lauren Green. That was, right, the, right. That was the premise. Um, and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And he went on the show and he did great. And, and you know, he liked us a lot. Uh, but Steve couldn't take L.A. But Gabe was a kind of a curious character, interesting guy. Right, right, right. Um, difficult to be around sometimes. Not a great conversationalist. You sort of had to carry it. He got a little tense, and I still had no money. Right. So he offered me $2,000 to go to Denver with him, and I turned it down. I turned down $2,000, and I wow. went, wow, what have I done? What have I done? Mm. But I did it. And, you know, one of the lessons is that when you say no, you really have to mean no. It can't be a negotiating ploy, and it wasn't. I thought It wasn't like I was hoping he'd go to 4000 I actually meant no. But when you are negotiating, if you're willing to walk away, saying no is, but as I, use, I, I call it the, the oh no, not Yoko, just the, 
You have to own no. Right, you right, have right. to literally say no and mean it. And if you stick to it, there's a shot you're going to win the negotiation. But you have to be willing to walk away. And with Gabe, I was willing to walk away. I didn't get any more money, and I didn't want any more money. I just didn't want to do the gig. You know, yeah, yeah. there I was in L.A., completely starving. So I knew somebody who knew Bob. He knew Bob Newhart's manager's name okay. was Arthur Price. Okay. And so I had a meeting with Arthur, and and Bob was hosting the Tonight Show quite a bit. But what he was about to do, this story will blow your mind. He was gonna he was gonna play Vegas, which he had not done a lot. Mm-hmm. And what he needed was somebody to write him a joke on every state in the union. So when he'd say to the audience, "Where are you from?" Idaho. He goes, eh, "Potatoes." You know, whatever the joke was. Oh right, 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 right. right. So it looked like he thought of something. You know, nobody would think that he would memorize fifty jokes. You know, right. So I had a meeting with Bob, 10 o'clock in the morning, at a place called the Old World on Sunset. doesn't exist. I haven't okay. been there for years. Okay. I had no car, didn't know how to drive. From Montreal, we had a great subway system. I'm in L.A. I have nothing. I have right. nothing. Right. And it's 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm sweating like a pig. I walk up to the Old World on Sunset from my little hovel on Havenhurst in West Hollywood. Get there at 10 o'clock. Newark's in a blue, powder blue jumpsuit. Like he's at a you know a golf club in Florida. Right. And um, he's already drinking a beer at 10 o'clock in the morning. Like 10.01, he's got the beer. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I love Bob Newhart. Love Bob Newhart. He's drinking a beer. This is great. So he says, you can have something to eat? I ordered everything on the menu. I had like a nine-egg omelet. And I'm, I'm, I'm eating. He says, I'm already I'm eating <laughs> with Bob Newhart. He's drinking. I'm good. So he goes, so I think Arthur told you I need a joke. And I said, yeah, sure, sure. And I'm thinking, 50 jokes. Okay, that's a lot. Of... And he says, I'll pay you 2000 There's a 2000 at Gabe. Talk about karma. <laughs> right, 50 yeah. jokes. I said, I've... he said, can you do that? I said, absolutely. Thinking, I don't know. It's going to be wow. hard. But <laughs> I said, when did you buy? He said, tomorrow morning at, at 10 o'clock. I said, what? Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock? In other words, like 23 hours and 58 minutes from that moment. Right, right, and right. I said, absolutely. Inside, I'm going, I have no chance of doing this. I have no prayer. Right, 50 right. jokes. Are you kidding me? So we talked some more. I finished my nine-egg omelet. I had the hash browns. Hash browns got refills of the hash browns. He had four more beers, and I'm good. And I leave, and I walk back, trudge back to my. I'm sweating like a pig now. It's you know 11:30. It's 88 degrees, middle of the summer. Right. I go back to my apartment. I'm sitting, and I have a little Columbia desk encyclopedia. I remember it had just gray cover has all these facts about the United States and the world. I have no reference. There's no internet. There's no obviously. There's nothing. Right, right, right. There's nothing. I'm living in a place where I have no furniture. I got nothing. I got to write 50 jokes. It's like Rumpelstiltskin of comedy. How am I going to do this? So I turn to the thing. Okay, first day, whatever it is, alphabetically. I don't know. Alabama. Maybe there's one before that. Alabama. Right, right, right. And I go through it. And, and I've got my little brother typewriter. I'm writing jokes. And now I'm up to, I don't know, let's say uh, Louisiana. And it's two in the morning. I have eight hours. And there's a fire in the building. Right. And, you know, the alarms are clanging. I'm going, what? This is insane. Right. And, you know, and there's a voice, like, get out of the building. So I take my <laughs> eight pieces of paper with the, right. with the 31 jokes that I have so far and the little brother typewriter. I run outside into the street and I'm going, what? and now I'm typing in the middle of Havenhurst Drive. Uh, you know, I'm, now I'm on Maine and I'm writing jokes. Right, it's right. cuckoo. Finally, let us back in the building about probably 4.30. Uh-huh. And I have about, you know, I don't know, seven states to go. And I still want to take a shower because I look disgusting. I got to shave. I want to be presentable for Bob, even though he's got the blue powder. The pa- I keep saying blue powder, the powder blue jumpsuit. I finished the last state at maybe 9.30. I jump in the shower. I fly. I run up to sunset. I get there at 9.59. Right. And there's Bob, same powder blue jumpsuit. Right. And same shirt with the collar 18 feet outside. And uh, he's still drinking a beer, maybe the same one from yesterday. Right. Uh, probably not, knowing Bob. And he goes, you got the jokes? I went, here they are. And I hand him the jokes. This is before I ordered, because I'm going, at least I got breakfast out of the gig, you know? Right, right, right. And he's reading, and I remember he takes his glasses, he puts the glass at the end of his nose, and he's looking, and he's laughing. <laughs> I don't know. Who's <laughs> laughing? And I'm going, this is incredible. And he finishes, he goes, this is great. 
he writes out a check for two thousand cash, hands me the check. Wow. I don't care about breakfast at that point. I got two thousand dollars. A lot of money back then. Yeah. A lot of money. It's not money now. It's a lot of money now. Yeah. $40 a joke. I did the math because I am a Jew. <laughs> and so I, I kept wishing, why, why aren't there 60 cents? I could have more money. So I got paid. I went back home. And, and John, the moral really is that, you know, you say, yeah, you say no when you're negotiating, but you say yes all the time. Then you figure right. out a way to do it. Right. Because, right. and what that did for me is I realized, and this is going to sound disgusting and nauseating, but, you know, you'll understand. I mean it in a very positive way. You know, you have to believe in yourself, and and I really believe that there's nothing I can't do. Double negative, totally on purpose. Right, 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 right. If I pulled that off, that absurd miracle, fifty jokes in one night with a fire in the middle, I went. I, it's okay. Deadlines are fine. I can yeah. finish. I can do it. My brain is good. As long as I don't have Alzheimer's, thank God. Yeah, I'm okay. You know what I mean? I feel the same way. Yeah, exactly. you have to feel that. You way. have to. You have to feel it's that. It's a crazy way. business. You got to believe in yourself. Right. And then three weeks later, three weeks later, I'll forget, Variety used to have. A uh, kind of a newspaper uh, version of itself every Wednesday, and it was like a tabloid, like the New York right. Post, you know. And right. they would have legit reviews. So they had theater, and they would have live performance reviews. Vegas, Atlantic City, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So somebody said, "You're going to want to pick up Variety this week." I pick up Variety, and there's a review of Newhart in Vegas, and it says, "And the highlight of the show is when Bob asked audience members what state they're from, and he would instantly call out a very funny joke, depending on the state they're from." And they literally quoted one or two. I wish I could remember, but I can't. Right, right, right. And I read that. And I went, oh, my God, I'm in show business. This is so crazy. I've written for Bob Nord. This is absurd. <laughs> this is absurd. And then he ended up having me write. He hosted The Tonight Show. Right. And I wrote a monologue for him. You know, we do, people may not know, but Newhart's thing was to react to an imaginary person. So it would just be him right. either on the phone or, you know, we had a thing where he was uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and he invented tobacco. He was trying to sell tobacco to somebody. And and he would sort of and he go tobacco tobacco no it's, it's you roll it up and you and you set it on fire that kind of thing and the person <laughs> would think he's an idiot you know right, right. so you do those kinds of routines so he said I need a brand new one so I wrote a thing about he was a prison baseball coach and he was addressing everybody on his team the first day of spring training and uh, this was you know Watergate time and um, remember the big joke was uh, no, no no Mr Dean you 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 slide into second you don't break into it that was, that <laughs> right, was the big joke. And anyway, he goes on The Tonight Show, and, it, you know, he kills. And I'm sitting at home going, this is the greatest feeling. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So that's really how it began. That I could write for other voices. If the person had a point of view and had an attitude and had yeah. a character, I knew I could write for it, you know? So you, after you left Bob, and how did you get into, you said you created the name for Home Improvement. I, I'll tell you exactly uh, what happened. How did that happen? Well, first I did a show with Cal Burnett. What happened was I did warm-ups for seven years. I was kind of the king of the warm-ups. For people out there who don't know, when you see your sitcoms... Oh, when, you open... Oh, Whenever you, you watch them. Okay. Well, of course, you know, obviously, but they, they may not know what a warm-up guy is. But yeah, basically, there's a, know, guy, that's great. there's a guy in the audience, ladies and gentlemen, who comes out, introduce the evening to everybody, tell them what they're in for. They don't know the taping's going to take five hours. They think they're there for 22 minutes because that's right. how long a show is. Right. But they're mistakenly... They're, they're sadly mistaken. So anyway, um, so the gig is to come out, make them laugh, introduce the evening to them, bring out the cast, and then every time something breaks, a light bulb explodes, there's a costume change because the scene takes place the next day. Obviously, you got to kill 15, 20, 25 minutes, sometimes a half an hour, sometimes 40 minutes right, in right, between, right, right. right? So you really hone your comedy chops doing that because you burn up material really quickly. Oh, yeah. So you do a lot of Q&A. I did no games, no T-shirts, yep. no giveaways, no prizes. It was yep. just me and my brain play with the audience for hours and hours and hours. So I did that. I did it for a ton of shows. Um, a lot of shows that went on to become big hits. I did 
I did Roseanne. I did Murphy Brown. I did oh, Head okay. of the Class. I did Designing Women. I mean, a lot of stuff. And okay, then a lot so of failed pilots. So you did the, so you, you did the warm-up for those. Right. For those. But what happened was, so I did Roseanne. And when I say did Roseanne, I mean the show. i got to be very careful. And Matt Williams, who had created the show, uh, was there at the time. But he got fired after the first six episodes by Roseanne. That's a whole. That's another podcast in itself. Wow. So Matt really never saw me do the warm-up because he was banned from the set very early on. Wow. But I did a you know really good job. It was it was an interesting an interesting time. I heard Roseanne was like that. She, I, I, you have I, no I, idea. I know all about it. She fired everybody. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you my Roseanne story if we have time at the end. So anyway, yeah. so I did the warm-up. And in the meantime, I had a writing partner, a female I'd known from New York. And... Uh, I was also doing the warm-up on Murphy Brown. And she said, um, you know, I wanted to talk to Diane English. We created Murphy Brown and see if we can pitch her an idea for a show. So I kept putting it up because I didn't want anybody to think that I had taken the gig as a warm-up to get something. You know, when you do the warm-up, you have to support the show. The show is the star. Right. You're not the afterthought, but you're you're very, very low in the tone pole, like bottom. You know what I mean? Right, right. But at one point I went, all right, yeah, I think it's time. I think I think Diane trusts me enough. So we, we approached her. We pitched. She loved it. We sold it. And they produced it. And I actually did the warm-up on my own show that I had written. But anyway, in the meantime, now... Wait a minute. This is for Home Improvement? No, this is for Murphy Brown. Oh, Murphy Brown. Okay. okay. So, so Marilyn, who was my partner at the time, Marilyn said, uh, we should get an agent. And now that we have a produced episode of television, we get it. So she made a bunch of phone calls. She was great at that kind of stuff. And lo and behold, we got an agent. In the meantime, um, Matt Williams, who had created Roseanne and been right. let go, now at a deal at Disney. So it turned out he was doing an anthology show with Carol Burnett. And Carol Burnett, gigantic, legendary comedy star, right? But the conceit was... Again, old school, you know, 50 years later, you're still watching her. That's exactly right. This was going to be a dramatic anthology. And so they hired all these dramaturges and all these playwrights, and it was going to be every week was a different show. Every week was a brand new half an hour of TV, like writing a pilot a week. Very bold, daring experiment, right? Right. Well, it was so bold and daring that after two weeks they went, what are we doing? We have Carol Burnett. Why are we doing a dramatic anthology? We have to do a comedy anthology. This is absurd. Right. So they fired every writer. And then there was Matt Williams saying, I now have to hire funny people. And we knew that through our agent. Right. So the agent figured, okay, he was around. He did the warm-up. We have a Murphy Brown that sold. So we sent him the script. And he went, this is great. Just because he could do warm-up doesn't mean he can write. And it's clear that his partner wrote every joke in the script. And I don't want to meet him. Which made, there was no rationalization for that. Right, anyway, right. they called 11 times. This is in the days when an agent actually did something. They called 11 right. times and got us the meeting with Matt. And I told Marilyn, I said, look, don't say anything because I don't want to get, I don't want to write a gig. I didn't come here to be a writer. I'm a comedian. So I said, well, we're going to get the gig. We went in and all I did was jokes about Roseanne getting tattoos that made fun of Matt. And I was making up nonsense in the room. And okay. I made him laugh. Right. Because the gig was to be funny in the room. I'd never been in a writer's room. I didn't even know what it meant. Right, but right, I knew right, you had right. to be funny, right? Right, right? So I go in. I was essentially insulting him, but through Roseanne's voice. Right. Four hours later, we got the phone call. You're on the show. So the two years writing Carolyn Company, which is a comedy anthology, the cast was incredible. And again, we had to serve five rep companies' needs and Carol. We had Peter Krause, who went on to do a thousand shows, Richard Kind. We had Jeremy Piven. We, oh, yeah. had, we had all stars. Oh, wow. All starting out in 1989, 1990. Yeah, okay? wow. But that's how I learned to write for TV because we were writing a pilot, John, every single week. And if Carol didn't like the script Monday morning with the table reading, we had to go back to the drawing board Tuesday or Monday night at 2 in the morning. And once we had a show on, you know, we're going to tape on Friday, it was Thursday and we had no script. And wow. we wrote an entire, and again, we don't have existing characters, right? We wrote an entire script on Thursday. 
that we shot on Friday. Mm-hmm. And what well, there was a whole staff of eight, nine, ten people, right? Yeah. But everybody sort of crapped out early, and it was the three guys who created the show and me at four in the morning because from the stand-up days, I, those are my hours. I was flourishing at four. Right. Everybody else was passing out, right? Oh, so yeah. I said, this is great. Bring me pizza. I'll be I'm funny. I'm like that now. I'm up till three exactly. in the morning every night. <laughs> exactly. But we were on the Disney lot when I was getting paid. I mean, it was great. Right. And the money was horrible then, by the way, because I had split it with a partner. Luckily, they fired her. So now I was making all the money, but it was still crappy. Still really crappy, especially <laughs> for those hours, like $11 an hour. But so, Matt came to me one day, one fateful day, and he said, we're... We just had to deal with Tim Allen. And I knew who Tim was, but, you know, he was not in L.A. He was a huge fish in a tiny pond in Detroit. That's but, right, you know, yeah. but if you know your comedy, you know, you're following what's out there, right? So uh, I said, okay, I know who Tim is. I know what his act is. You know, I, I get it. And he said, we're going to do a series. We don't really, we kind of have a little bit of an idea what it is. We kind of know. We're not sure. He said, we're going to call it Hammer Time. And I said, no, you're not. And he had two partners, Carmen Finaster and David McFadden. Yeah, he did the whole thing about uh, to- power tools. Well, and, yeah, yeah, but yeah. right, but MC, that, yeah. but MC Hammer, his logo, his trademark phrase was Hammer Time. MC Hammer was a huge star back then. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so the three guys, look, I'm not the hippest white man on the planet, trust me, but, you know, when you're a comedian, you have to know what's in the zeitgeist. It's important. You have to know what's out there, right, even right. if it's not an area that you're an expert in. So, of course, I knew about Hammer Time. I said, you can't call it. And they're, they're going, why not? I said, guys, you can't do it. it. sounds like it's a black rap show. You can't do it. So sort of challenging me. They said, okay, then what will you call it? And, you know, the, Im- the implied Mr. Big Shot, they didn't say that. But essentially, they went, okay, Mr. Big Shot, what would you call it? And I swear to God, they told me the premise. And it was going to be about a guy who's got to fix a show within his show who's trying to, you know, improve his situation at home with his kids and make them to be better men. And right. for whatever reason, without thinking, I just said, call it home improvement. It's kind of a dual meaning. And they went... Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. And that was it. I mean, that moment of clarity, for whatever stupid reason, yeah. that changed my life. But I heard Michael Eisner is is the one that approved the home improvement, that he went to go see Tim Allen at no, the No, it was Jeffrey Katzenberg. Saw him at, okay. at the, LA, at the uh, Comedy Festival in Montreal. That's where, oh, is that what it was? Yeah, that's, okay, where, that's okay. where Tim was spotted. No, but okay. this was already, it was, because Matt now had he'd been fired by Roseanne, let go by Carsey Warner. He had a deal at, at Disney. They brought him Tim. This was this is a year before we ever did the show, but the point because Carol was winding down, she couldn't do the show anymore. She found it too hard, whatever, whatever. Right, right. And so this was the very incipient stages, and he came to me and said what I just told you. So now we had a title, we had a, we had a title, but there was no script. Right. So the three guys wrote the script, and they brought it to me, and it was great. They included some of Tim's act, you know, the stuff that people would really know. Right, right. But it needed more jokes, and so I put in a ton of jokes in the pilot. And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, uh, who knew that it was going to be what it became? But I remember I did the warm-up on the pilot, which was great right. to actually get to do the warm-up on a show you're writing on. And I will tell you, John, that the response to that night from the audience was insane. Yeah, yeah. You just felt you went, they wow. feel like they know him, and he let them into his world, and they were in love with him. And when you're in love with a performer, that's when things take off. Of course, That's when yeah. the magic happens. They loved him, you know? Yeah. And I knew... He had a thing, and I think it was out of his act. I don't remember. I don't want to shortchange him, but it may have been out of his act. But it was, it was in the opening, in the cold opening. He talked about um, something about, yes, women are important, women are important. Um, but let's be honest, uh, we men own everything. And, you know, that can be at the time, even then. Right, I mean, right. now you couldn't say that. But right. back then I'm going, whoa, and they cheered. They <laughs> loved that he said men own everything. Men own. <laughs> and I went, okay, if they bought that, we, we can get away with murder here. This is crazy. So I learned so much from that because he was such a charming performer and they bought whatever he said. And he didn't say it in a, in a 
evil way, in a mean way. It was done in a very charming fashion, but it's a pretty provocative thing to say, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So when I saw him get away with that, I went, "All right, we got it. We have a hit here." It was a, it was an amazing feeling, cuckoo time. And that, 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 that obviously those credits, how, and then your again relationships, and who you know, and Hollywood that that led you to the new monsters. No, new monsters and... is way before. Way before. Oh, that was before. Oh, okay. God, yeah. I mean, I, okay. we left out a ton of stuff because, uh, come on, we only have and an Friday hour. Friday the 13th. I'm not that interesting. That. No, Friday the 13th was the first thing I ever wrote. I wrote oh, that. Oh, wow. Okay. I wrote that so, way in like 84, so, 85 because. Oh, so that led you to. Uh, that led me to nothing. That led me to a couple of paychecks, which I desperately needed. Now, Friday the 13th was a horror anthology show. Right. Twilight Zone ish, not nearly as good, quite obviously. Right. But I told you I had a writing partner. She was really a go getter. Right. The show was shot in Toronto. I'm Canadian. She used me. Right. Basically approached the producers in Los Angeles and said, Well, half my team, him, is Canadian. Will that help? And they went, Yes. We pitched some <laughs> ideas. And uh, we wrote, th- we ended up writing three episodes. And it was funny. The irony there was they said, No jokes, no comedy. Everything you write is <laughs> going to seem like a setup. Ignore the setup and move to the next setup. No joke. And you know how hard that was to write that? Oh, yeah, I can but, imagine. But writing drama, I found so easy because it was comedy with no jokes. I mean, my God. Oh, yeah, I've just written drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, know, so that's, 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 that was the first thing I actually ever got paid for. Oh, okay, so that's pretty cool. So you did The Monsters, all, all that before. All before. The Home Improvement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and before then, and and Carol and Company was the first big one, but we left. I also wrote on a late night talk show in 1986 for David Brenner, so I had that oh, experience, okay. which was amazing experience being in New York City to get paid in New York. Oh my God! Yeah, and that was fantastic. You know, having to turn out so a that's different. That's pretty cool that you you've met all the top comedians. A lot of, a lot of big people. Past forty years. A lot of big I mean, people. Everybody. Thirty eight. I mean, Let's not push it, John. Right, thirty eight. Thirty eight years. Thirty eight years. I mean, that's pretty cool, man. It's good. It's good. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, yeah, and so one of the best actors and producers you've ever worked with are, like, who? Who'd be, like, one of the best things you've ever heard of? Uh, one of the best actors I ever worked with was Candace Bergen and Murphy Brown. Okay, Candace I was, was incredible. Incre- to be that beautiful. I always thought she was cute, by the way. <laughs> stunning. <laughs> stunning, was... elegant, classy. Yeah. Beyond articulate, eloquent, well-read. I'll tell you what happened. On the first show back on whatever, maybe sixth season, seventh season, I was still doing the warm-up, which I love doing, and I sent her flowers. And not a bad thing to do politically. Exactly. But I did it because if I hated her, I'm the kind of guy, John, that if I don't like you, I can't pretend. Yeah. It's the one thing that's held me back in my life. I can't, I can't fake that, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. like you. I'm the greatest friend in the world. So I sent her flowers. Yeah. And I went to the set, and she came running over, because I didn't sign my name. I think I had some sort of clue or something. Uh-huh. And she came around and she goes, I know it was you because CBS would never send me flowers. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Fingers. And it was, it was amazing. But she was, and I'll tell you, the, the best actor I ever saw, because again, from being on a lot of shows and also doing a ton of warm-ups, Judd Hirsch, a name that I hope you guys know. Of course. Yeah. Well, I know you would know, but I mean, he was Taxi. on Taxi. Mm-hmm. Brilliant guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd seen him on Broadway and I'm not Rappaport. He's an amazing talent. But- I saw him do a show called Dear John because I did the warm-up on that show, which is a better show than people remember. It was pretty pretty darn good. Anyway, after the show, I went up to Judd. I said, I have never seen a man hit his mark and deliver a line, a joke, uh-huh. perfectly as if he thought of it in that moment. Didn't sound memorized. Didn't sound rehearsed. It sounded like you thought of it in that second, hitting your mark perfectly and doing it as casually and conversationally as a human. I said, I've never, and I've seen a billion guys, and he was so visibly moved. It was amazing. Wow. He said, but I know you've done warm-ups and on this show, and you've seen Candace, and you work with I said, I'm telling you, Judd, you're brilliant. And he was, 
I mean, he loved the compliment. And yeah. it's okay, by the way, to be effusive. When you like something, tell people. And that's in life, too. Don't hold back, because we all could die tomorrow. And the, so, yeah, exactly. what, are you, what are you holding back, right? And the producers you work with, are they all pretty cool, the people, the producers you've worked with? And, the three and, guys uh, who changed my life, who hired me on Carroll and & Company and then on Home Improvement, I give them credit. Always, 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 always. They changed my life. They were amazing. They're still around. They're still, They're still around. They're not. They are still a company. They, you know, they made they made a few dollars from home improvement. I was so, gonna say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we also, and I think you sort of mentioned in passing, I was on three shows at the same time. That was sort of the apex of my career. I was on a show called Buddies with Dave Chappelle and Jim Brewer, right. and a show called Thunder Alley with with Edward Asner and Haley Joel Osment, the kid from Six Sense. He did it when he was five years old. So I was actually working on three shows. Now, at be the honest same. with me. You, yeah. You, you know. How rich you, am I? Is that what you're gonna ask me? Well, do you make money? Do you make residual? <laughs> you must make residual. You make some I, good residuals, I make, right? You I must, make some, some. You make some good money. I make you, money you from help home. create a home improvement. Well, I, so obviously you have some money to be. John, if this whole thing on. was to get a loan, we're gonna have to talk about it. <laughs> if this, you just sucked me into come here to the valley for a three hundred dollar loan. Yeah, yeah, it worked apparently. Yeah, I got three hundred cash grand. on me. Yeah, yes. Um, I, I do get. No. I, I have I have points in home improvement. Yes. Okay. The other two shows were not big enough to really go into syndication, but home improvement was on eight years, and yeah, I do own a piece of the show. Okay. And I'll and be this, honest with it you. Still runs. I mean, no, no. Still... Thank God. It's incredible. And and I'll tell you the truth. I never asked for it. They offered it. How about that? That's great. Which is amazing. Which That's is amazing. Great. So yeah. But but here's the thing. I love what I do, and even if I had eleven times the money I have, and whatever I have, I have it doesn't matter. I, I do what I do because I love it. It's now not for the money. It's now because, like you said earlier, we love making people laugh with our brains. I like exactly. Making, I, if a waitress is in a horrible mood and there's no one else in the restaurant, I make her laugh. I'm I'm not lying when I tell you that it feels just as good in its own unique way as it does making 18,000 people laugh in, in an auditorium or, you know, 34 million people. It's uh, true. Yeah, it's true. I love me. I'll go walk, walk into Ralph's and joke around with the with the cashier. Absolutely. And I'll say something silly about my cat food I'm buying. Absolutely. I have a very hungry cat that can't stand it. Right. And just a little thing like this, she's like laughing. Oh, my God, you really look at Well, she laughs at that. Uh, you're, I love you're that. You're good. <laughs> um, that's not funny. Yeah. Let's be honest. No, but, but, no, but, that's, but that's, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so I still do it. And I, you know, I still love it. And I also, I'll squeeze this in. I teach stand-up to kids. And that, for me, again, oh, the so money great. is a nine billionth of what I've made. Don't do it for the money because it's the most satisfying thing on the planet that right. I have ever done. I'm talking about kids, John, who were five, seven, nine years old, it's, it's, and I get through to them. Right. And they got. we did a showcase a few weeks ago, and I would say the 24 kids, probably, I don't know, 17, through the yeah. roof. And to watch that happen and watch kids grow in very little time because we have about a month to work with the kids to write their material and then do the show. And we bring right. in top casting people, Nickelodeon, Disney, et cetera, et cetera. And you watch these kids come in a little shy, a little scared, and they get up there. John, it's an unbelievable film. Oh, that must be great, Yeah, man. it's amazing. So, you know, the, the, it, it continues. And that's, you know, I'm still writing. I'm still doing a lot of stuff. But for me, that's the most satisfying thing by a lot, i got to tell you. Now, what are some of the, uh, really, some, uh, a couple of stories of some horrible things that happened to you? Like Steve Mazan, um, this became a friend of mine who's been on the show a couple, right. couple, couple months ago. Um, you know, one over cancer, relationships. Some of my comics were into alcohol, like Perry Kurtz, uh, drugs like cocaine, living in a car for months, like Steve Wilson from the D.L. Hughley show. Um, Can't top any of that. Any, I've had any, my own horrible things my own way. Um, I was never self destructive. Don't drink, don't do drugs, never did, never will, hate them, don't get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. It's a crutch. It's a horrible business. It's a very tough planet. Um, but I, I never got sucked in. And when I was on the road, I watched so many guys destroy themselves. It was never interesting or intriguing. Yeah. Not my thing. But 
I've Brock. heard the stories. Rich Eidner talked about oh, well, that a absolutely. few times, and Gene Pompa. A thousand percent. Like, and right, I love Rich. Right. I love Gene. They're both incredible yes. guys and great comics. Yeah. But Nice guys, too. They're really nice guys. But what I did, I was self-destructive once. Uh, I had a show on the air on Fox called Ask Harriet. You can look it up. We did 13, five aired, then we were canceled. To make a very long story short, you know, basically, I was in charge of 150 people's lives. And we got canceled after five episodes. I knew why we got canceled. I won't wow. go through the whole five thing episodes, now. Yeah. yeah, five episodes in, and it was a really, really, really funny show. Yeah. But we got screwed by Fox at the time for a yeah. lot of political reasons. And what I did, yep. and I regret it now. It took me a lot of years to admit that I regret yep. it. I wrote a letter to Peter Roth, who was the president of Fox Television, yep. very powerful man, decrying what he did. Nine page with the best writing John I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Nine page letter. I believe it, man. The dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. And let me just tell you something, because everything what I learned in show business is it's not a good thing to be wrong, but worse than being wrong is when you're right. And everything I wrote was right, right. right. because our show is a placeholder till another show is ready to go on. They basically used our show just to fill a time slot. And the second this other show was ready, we had no chance in hell of surviving. But I didn't know that going in, right? Right, right. And also 150 people were out of work pretty much now, around Christmas time. And I was as sad as I've ever been. And I wrote in this letter everything I've just told you and more. And a quote of statistics and numbers. I paid Nielsen my own cash to Uh prove the great uh, ratings that we had. And it hurt me so badly. I couldn't, I didn't work for three years. I couldn't get a meeting for three years. How about this? How about Peter got fired two weeks later, ended up becoming the president of Warner Brothers Television, which is a lot more than running a network. Warner Brothers TV can have shows on any network on the planet, right? Okay. I was being considered for two and a half men by somebody who helped create the show, all right? And I was told, I was told when this show happens, essentially you're on. But it was a Warner Brothers show. Right. I didn't get the gig. And there's no other reason why. I have no proof, but, you know, two and two does equal four. If right. it looks like a duck, et cetera, I hate finishing cliches. The reality is that this person who was also very powerful, but not Peter, who ran the company, went to Peter and said, we want to bring, you know, bring Billy Reed back on the show. The answer was a resounding, not while I'm alive. I mean, it, I, I know what yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. Again, can I prove it? No, but there's well, no question. Listen, it's all politics. Well, it only cost me, I think, I think it cost me probably $14 million. So, you know. <laughs> Is that as yeah, bad as being a cocaine addict? No, but it's not good. So that was a huge mistake I made. And, and you know, I loved what I wrote. I believed every word. I was passionate. Like, if you read the letter, you'd go, this is genius. All I'd get from this is you're a passionate guy who really cares. Right. But Peter didn't look at it like that. Right. And he was not a happy man. So, But, but okay, that's, that's more for business. I mean, anything personally? Well, well that, that was, that, that, no. I mean, I guess it was personally. But I starved mean, for seven years. I worked in a gay bar. My sister died. You know, these are all good things. And uh, my father okay, beat me right. when I was five. I can keep going. I mean, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, yeah. Whoa, whoa. Come on. Please. Well, I didn't know. Whoa, whoa, well, whoa. You know, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, we've all had stuff. Absolutely. I didn't know that. Okay. But, we get, but you know what? Here's the thing I've learned. I've been in therapy 22 years. And basically- See, I didn't know that either. Well, okay, this, uh... we have to have another show. <laughs> okay. You know, you can ask me the question. I'm not going to volunteer not, not to, that. Not to laugh, but I'm just saying that's no, of why course. I'm asking you. Well, of course. Now, but, but, but that's all Bill, nonsense. Bill, 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 Bill. Why? That's all nonsense. You know why? Go ahead. Why did your father beat you? Because he doesn't like his life, because I was another man in the family, and how would you? I mean, was it really bad beating? Well, was with a strap, like... unbuckle the the pants, t- whip out the belt, really bend down, pull down your pants, and how smash many, me. A long, a lot of times. I, I, I stopped many, counting when the welts became permanent. Many years, or just you know, a few years. Well, yeah. my mother stood in the corner watching helplessly. Not good, not good. And your mother just watched. What's she gonna do? She was terrified. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, we all have our things. See, this is see, this is what I. These are the things. 
you know, I hate to bring it up, but that's that, okay. This is I've nothing to hide. This is why I do the show yeah. to let the listeners know that when you listen to my show and you listen to people, great people like Billy and all the other comedians. Okay, Perry uh, Kurtz, he also got beaten by his dad. Sure. Okay. I think his dad beat me, too. I still remember it. That was bad. He found me and beat me. What was that all about? You know, uh, thank God I've never been beaten. Uh, Yes, I've been slapped and all that kind of stuff when I do something bad, but I came from good parents. But my whole point is, my point is, the people listen, you know, they bitch and complain about their lives and mom and dad and this and this. Oh, man, I can't make enough money. But, But realistically... Most people have a great life when you can when you listen to other stories like this, but the, so you have horrible things that happen to you. Just like I won't get into it, but I had horrible things that happened to me. I almost drowned, my car almost exploded. Uh, you know, I almost got killed a few times here in the different few times. things. Yes, that's a lot. Yes, um, almost lost uh, an eye. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Yeah, um, but I'm still here and I'm still healthy and thank God. Um, you know, very religious kind of guy. So, and I remember Frazier Smooth, if you listen to his show, one of the best things he ever said is, I'm not sure if you're religious, Billy, or not. spiritual, um, but he said, you know, God has a plan. So I said, man, you're right. That's Here's what I believe, golden rule. But what do you, yeah, what is golden your, rule. What is your take on... Uh, on golden rule, get, you get back what you give off. Do unto others. That's my golden rule. That's my that's my religion. I'm a Jew. I love the tradition. I love the culture. I love the customs. I believe in none of the nonsense. And uh, what I what I get from being a Jew is that you you do charity for people. You do because there's a thing called tzedakah. Yeah. And you, you treat people right. And that's the bottom. And you do it, John, not to get something back. Now you know karma, and I love karma, and I believe yeah. it to a point. It is. But it you really can't does work, do yeah. it. But you can't do it, John. To have it come back to you, do it because it's the right thing to do. And if it comes back to you, great. But if it doesn't come back to you, you still did something good for somebody. So that should be karma enough. Exactly. But it always. But the, but Bill, the whole thing, whole thing is, it does come back to you. It might not be right away. It oh, it's never, few, it's never um, right away. No, I mean, this is not, not in my life. Okay. I've done too, let me tell you something. If you if you had a list of the things I've done for people, but but here's what I'm saying. I get what you're saying, and I you know, I, I want it to be true. Yeah. But the reality is. Whatever I did for people, I don't talk about it, and I, I would if you asked, if we had time, but I did it because it was, the, for me, it was the thing to do, and that's it. And if it comes back to me, I mean, it's fantastic, but if it doesn't, I'm not upset about it. i got to tell you, it's fine. Well, the whole thing, again, yeah, this, this, that's just very interesting because I would have never known that your dad you know, beat you up or- Didn't beat me or, up, just smash me. Uh, really hard. <laughs> but my whole point is, I never knew that when, yeah. you, when you were just talking about how you made your dad laugh. Absolutely. You know, and your mom and all this kind of stuff. Yep. You know, I've talked about that. My mom is hysterical. My dad was a stubborn, old-fashioned doctor guy. Yep, yep. Okay? I and saved it. Did he laugh? Said, Not much, you know? Yeah. I saved it because you said, when are you going to ask about bad things? And now I'm yeah, this one, this one I'd ask you. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Anything else to, to say about <laughs> any, any, any worse things than that? I mean... I mean, when you maybe no. living in New York City, maybe in, in clubs. Um, oh, a thousand the... stories. I mean, th- Anchorage, Alaska. I, I had to do an uh-huh. hour. Uh-huh. I followed Charlie Hills, an, uh, an American Indian comedian, and unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. But Charlie was a middle act. I was headlining Charlie Destroyed, and I had to go up, and they did not want to see a white Jew mm-hmm. on stage. And uh, he was like their hero. You know, these people working right. on the pipeline. You know, half right. of them were Indians, the other half were Eskimos. And uh, there was me. 
And I go on stage, and they just laughed at nothing. And I had to do an hour. I did every joke I'd ever heard. I probably did your act. I did everybody's act. Right. Look at my watch. I'd done 12 minutes. At 48 minutes to go, I had oh nothing left to say. Wow. So I said, are there any Jewish people here? And a guy yelled out, not anymore, pal. So, you know. Oh, you, my God. Yeah. Really? Oh I swear, my God. I swear to God. Absolutely. Oh my Absolutely. Wow. But there's, oh, these stories. I, I wish there was one story I can't tell because it involves sort of dirty language. It doesn't matter. We can save that one. All you kinds say of, about doing the dirty no, language? No, 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 because the word is endemic to the joke. But, okay. oh, I was on stage once in Dallas, Texas, and uh, there were three girls sitting ringside who had been so drunk the whole show. I was headlining, and, and mm-hmm. which means nothing or whatever. I had 11 more good minutes in the, than the middle guy. Who cares if I'm headlining? But I was going on last. That's the main thing. Yeah, yeah. And the first two guys got heckled unmercifully by these three women who were drunk, drunk, drunk. That was the improv. It was Sunday night, I remember, in Dallas uh-huh. a million years ago. And I kept begging management to toss these women out. But they were drinking a lot. Mm. Hey, well, the room was packed. Wow. I think it's that three fifty, four hundred, whatever, whatever. Right. So if they lose $40, but you're ruining the show. Right. So anyway, they wouldn't do a thing. So I went on stage, and I just lambasted. The, I did every lesbian joke you could think of. I did every your hideous joke. I mean, I did I mean, huge laughs. Yeah. So one of the women got up with a pitcher of water, walked on stage like I was a Wicked Witch of the West, and dumped the entire pitcher of water on my head. Oh, my gosh. And then, by the way, they threw them out. But what happened was very interesting. So I was wearing, I remember, because really good looking, an orange silk shirt that I don't know what I was, pos- I thought it was Tom Jones for apparently for 10 minutes. <laughs> I was going to say orange And the silk shirt <laughs> became transparent. Of from course. From the water, right? Totally so. Because My so, nipples are sitting, the hair is coming through the thing. Yeah. And let me tell you something. I have never done better on stage in my life because <laughs> I was so vulnerable you know, we all go up there, we have big mouths, we talk quickly, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, yeah. the audience has to be in love with you. You know what I mean? They have to love you. Yeah. The audience has never loved me on stage. I was, I talk quickly, I have a lot to say, I'm pretty smart, whatever, whatever. Right, right, but right. They, I never made them fall in love with me, and it's got to be a love affair, John. Of course. That night, it was it's a all love, about likability. It was a that. love yeah. affair. Yeah. I was so, I thought I was going to get electrocuted, but it was a love affair, and I've never killed more or louder than I did that night in Dallas, Texas, soaking wet for an hour on stage because wow. three idiots were drinking a lot and they wouldn't toss them. So, yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of those stories. Sure. But, you know, it's the oldest thing in the book, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's 100% true. That's why it's a cliche. And it's fine. It's I can laugh about it now. By the way, I laughed about it then. No, that's a, that's, a, that's amazing. This. Yeah. See, that's, that's, it's amazing that uh, you told me this, and I'm glad you did. Oh, and, and, I told you. I have nothing to hide. And Zero. See, I love that. I love that. And that's what I love to hear from the comedians, and uh, that's why I'm, it's becoming a popular show, and I, I love helping people's lives and all this. And uh, I'll be honest with you, at the end of those shows, I think to myself, says, damn, John, I've had a good life. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I get it. Yes, I had my own problems and issues of alcohol, all that kind of stuff, you know, but... Uh, but of course. But, um, but I've met a million people who have way worse lives than I Yeah, have. you're right. You're right. You and keep on the going answer is, worse and worse and worse. worse. It's there's always worse. always it's better and there's always worse. Exactly. Again, cliched, so true. I mean, my life is good. But yeah, I went through a lot of crap. Of course. It's fine. Amazing. Because by the way, most people have had what you've had, what you've had and what I've had. They don't have comedy to fall back on. They're, right. they're working as accountants. They hate their lives forever. Yeah, that's I don't, true. I don't hate my life now. That's a good point. I swear to God, I hear this all the time from people who making their six figures a year, the seventy-five grand a year? I got some friends right now. I'm not gonna say who they are. They're saying how they're making seventy, eighty grand a year. Are you happy? Mm, no, no, well, you make a, that's a lot of money. No, I'm not. Of course but not. Why? 
Because I want to do another sales job. I want to do... One guy wants to make music. Right. Okay? But he can't make... You know, he's course. getting older, and he wants to make money from music, but but he can't. So, um, he's, so he's stuck doing a couple, a couple other jobs. Right. And a few other people, the same thing. And I said this on my podcast, that I was making my six figures a year. I think I told Judy Carter this. Um, it was a wonderful uh, uh, woman. And um, very inspirational. And uh, and I told her, I said, you know, I was making 150 grand a year. Was I happy? No. Was a was it nice to make the money? Yeah. I said, but I wasn't doing my comedy. I just kind of gave it up. I wasn't making money from my acting. I, I didn't have no podcast back then. We're talking seven, eight years ago, that kind of thing. I said, yes, you know, I make money now and all this kind of stuff. Not fantastic, but I'm more happy doing this. Right. That's the thing. I'm unhappy doing this. Well, because there's a passion. You have a muse. Most people, John, in this world don't have a muse. And when you have a muse and you don't follow it, you become very unhappy. And if you don't have a muse, you're really in trouble. Because then you end up working a job that you hate, and then you die. And that's it. And it's not Exactly. Good. Exactly. So, believe that's me. That's why I want to bring this this way. I always, end my pod, I always end my podcast with great guests like you and who's been around. And I love it that you've been around old school like I have. I knew everyone you were talking about. Sure. I hope uh, everyone listens to to this. Uh, I'm sure you will. Uh, I get downloads all the time from iTunes. Um, but uh, to hear someone like Bill talk and hear some of the stories that, that I can say about the old school, the old days, guys. It, I'm telling you, it was better back then. People say, oh, Johnny, can't do anything. It doesn't matter. It was life was better back then. Shows were better back then. Yes, there's still good shows. Yes, I'm not saying all that, but why? Why is Bill talking about icons from 40, 50 years ago, George Carlin? Why am I talking about shows from 50 years ago, like the Andy Griffith Show? Because they're funny. They also had was, heart. They was, also had heart. It was out of heart. They they were good good comedy. It wasn't dirty. You didn't have to be dirty. You're just talking about just f- simple things. That's the thing. So I want to end it um, with uh, Bill, since you've been around a long time. <laughs> Okay, which is great. Nothing wrong with that. You didn't mean tonight on the show. You meant on, on Earth, right? <laughs> on Earth, yeah. Okay. Um, what can you say to our reader, uh, to readers, to our listeners? I say to readers, that readers you're really actually, sadly confused. To our readers, actually, <laughs> they're reading my website. It's got the the uh, bios on on people. Okay. So, um, readers and listeners. Yes. Uh, what can you say to them about um, uh, an inspirational message and some of the goals that you want in 2016? Well, I've written four movies in the last year and a half, and I'm trying to sell any of them. Certainly all of them would be lovely. They're all comedies. Unfortunately, there are a dearth of comedies these days. The last two weeks in L.A., 44 movies open, two comedies, one of them Seth Rogen, so it's one. Um, (laughs) Seth Rogen. (laughs) So, yeah. So, yeah, that's a new role where you're, you're, let's say you're stoned, then you have an epiphany, and then you're a better guy. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, every every movie, same thing. But this is one Christmas, so it's really special. Anyway. So that's what I'm looking to do, and I'm, I have a great partner in these projects. I've written four movies with a guy who's a wonderful guy, and uh-huh. um, we're, we're, a, we're a beautiful team. It's actually really nice. So okay. uh, we're out trying to sell those, and we're going to start a fifth movie in a couple of weeks. I just keep going. I do what I love, and, and um, it's, it's, it's a ball to do that. And when you find somebody who really compliments you with an E and occasionally with an I, then it's really kind of a joy. And basically, you know, my message is simple. If you do have a passion, you must try it at some point. You, you can't. You can't sit on the sidelines your whole life and go, I should have, I could have, I would have, because then you'll end up 83 and absolutely miserable. It doesn't mean you have to be homeless pursuing some crazy dream. But if you do have something and something that you're 
ideally good at, but even if it's painting, if it's sculpting, whatever it might be, you got to do it. You, you absolutely don't know. No one has any idea. Nothing is really written. I mean, yeah, there are fates. I don't know the answer if everything is mapped out. doesn't matter. The bottom line is if you have something inside of you that's burning deeply, you must pursue it. And the other thing is, and I said this before, you know, I really try to do the right thing every day. I, I, you can't knowingly do the wrong thing to me. It's, it makes no. I don't get it. I don't understand sometimes. And I've been in the business a long time and had some success. Right. Right. But I don't get when people do things that are so overtly horrible and mean spirited, and you actually go to sleep at night. I, it makes no sense to me. But as I said before, yeah, I agree. You've got to try to do the right thing at all times. And I truly, fervently believe you can't do it to get something back. You have to do it because it's the right thing to do. And that, honest to God, that should be enough. And for me, it's enough. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Every comedian that's uh, been on my show, and not, and not even on my show, people I've met over the years, okay, from st- from the, the comedy days. And um, I'm a big, I've always been into uh, inspirational. Uh, Steve Harvey talks about these great things, how he, he lost millions of dollars and he came through it and all this. And, um, and uh, of course... These motivational speakers like Jim Ron and so on, um, just fa- fantastic. But they're all basically bottom line is, and I've said this almost every show, is follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. You got nothing to lose. Even if you follow it, and nothing happens. Who cares? You did it because most people don't. Just like Billy said, most people don't. Right, Billy? Absolutely. Yes, so it's fantastic that you that you you said that, and uh, very excited to have Billy here um, tonight. And um, you just you just don't hear stories about classic uh, comedians like this, and we just have phenomenal things and uh, stories that you can that you can learn from. So um, again, Billy, uh, thank you so much for being on my show. Pleasure, an honor. It was great. Yeah, and I really I really love to have you here, man. And I uh, love hearing you uh, the other great stories. Of course, we're going to have more comedians every single week. Um, I'm working on some pretty big comedians. So we'll keep positive that it happens. <laughs> so um, knowing that, again, uh, where can the, get, Billy, can they see you? Where can they see you uh, perform? Like, are you on YouTube? Do you have videos and things like that? A few or? things. I'll tell you what they should look up, John. Uh, I did a thing a few years ago called Mr. Ten Percent. It's on Funny or Die. It's been there for about five years now. Oh. Basically, we, we winged the whole thing. Winged, wong, wong, whatever the best <laughs> is. Right. We winged uh, the whole thing. We had sort of a setup and a structure, but the whole thing was ad-libbed. It was, here's what you should do. Go to Funny or Die, okay. type in Mr. 10%, the okay. number 10%, Mr. 10%. Uh, put in my name, Billy Rebeck. Put in Ed Asner, because I co-star. my co-star is Ed. Oh, and, wow. And uh, I play essentially the world's worst agent. And I think you'll find it pretty darn funny. Now, oh, it's not that, that a seven-second thing where a squirrel sneezes and that's it. It's about 17 minutes. Oh, okay. And uh, it's pr- I'm pretty See, proud again, of you work with Ed Asner. I yeah. love Ed Asner. Well, like you few, know what I mean? I've done a few series with him. And uh, I called him and asked him to do it, and he was only too amenable to it. And uh, we had an absolute buy. I said, Ed, you go at me. I'm going right at you. And we rip each other in this thing. And it, you will laugh Pretty heartily, yeah, I think. Funnier Die. I have a lot of uh, comedy videos on Funnier Die, too. So, yes, go to Funnier Die. It's a wonderful place to see comedy, uh, see Billy. Of course, everyone knows you can find me on comicscomer.com. Uh, Google my name, John Perinci. You'll see tons of videos. First impression, ent.com. 
Uh, I'm all over the place. Of course, I have a book called What's a Little Wind, which I'm going to give a copy to Billy right now. It's my uh, motivational, inspirational book that got me into the uh, podcast. So, um, again, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We had a great show. And uh, follow your dreams and uh, just make your life great. Thank you so much. God bless. Mm -hmm.